The death and resurrection of Jesus are where all the stories of the four Gospels are heading. Each of the four Gospels tells the account of his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection. And while the Gospels are all heading there, it's good as a reader to say, but what happened next? And the answer is, there are appearances. There are appearances of the risen Jesus to individuals and to groups. There are what we might call encounters with the risen Christ. Paul wrote about this. In, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins accordance, in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul then says, Christ appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, to more than 500 brothers at one time. Paul said, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul goes on to say, Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Friends, these encounters are crucial to the understanding of the early disciples. They are crucial. They did not just imply a resurrection because the tomb was empty. They did not only look at the words and hear the words of the women that an angel had appeared to them. The early disciples encountered the risen Jesus. He appears to individuals and to groups and over a series of days, eating with them and teaching them and instructing them. Can you imagine? These are things even surpassing our ability to comprehend the glory and wonder to behold and eat with and speak with the glorified risen Jesus. Three of the four Gospels contain stories of Jesus appearing to others. Matthew, Luke, and John tell these stories. Only in Luke's Gospel is the story today found. I love the story of these two walking on a road to Emmaus. They're just going home, probably. That's where they end up, at a home in Emmaus. So we should imagine these weary, sorrowful disciples walking home. And it tells us in verses 13 to 16, Jesus walks with them. Here's how it works. Verses 13 to 16, Jesus walks with a couple people. It says that very day, two of them were going to a village. Verse 13 connects us with verses 1 to 12. That very day. What day was that? Well, it was the first day of the week, you see. You open chapter 24 of Luke. It's the resurrection morning. It's the morning when the women went to the tomb. They found it empty. They went to the disciples. Disciples came to that tomb to find it empty as well. And they had not all yet seen the risen Jesus. It was on that very day when two of them... We know then that the them must be some of those disciples in that group. According to chapter 24, verse 9, the women spoke of the empty tomb to the eleven and to all the rest. I want to submit to you, because of one of the names given in our passage today, Cleopas, that this is not one of the eleven, but one of the all the rest. Okay, so these two that are on the road are not among that original core group, but are besides the core group, other disciples who had been following after Jesus. Two of them, they are walking on the road home to a village. It's about seven miles 
from the city of Jerusalem. And they're talking in verse 14 about what? There is nothing. There is nothing more pressing on the minds of the disciples than the things that have been happening. The things that have happened are of such a magnitude that it would be absolutely absurd that any of the eleven and all the rest would be thinking on and talking about anything else. This dominates their mind. Because in their hearts, in their psyche, they are grieving and crushed and distressed. These people are talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they are... Verses 15 and 16 tell us Jesus himself drew nearer and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We need verse 16. An extraordinary and unusual thing is happening. They know of Jesus. They've heard Jesus. They're disciples of Jesus. Jesus coming near to them, you would think, all right, you would think would immediately ring true with what they see, the sound of his voice. We know that voice. Can it be? He looks exactly like the one that we have followed. But they are talking and discussing about all these things that have happened. Jesus himself draws near, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That will not remain the case. This is a temporary non-recognition, but it is for a purpose. The tomb is empty, but their eyes are closed. And in the Gospels, sight is often a metaphor for spiritual understanding as well. Jesus will speak about the religious leaders, for instance, being the blind leading the blind. People whose spiritual perception is so poor so dismal that they are not leading people to truth. They're conspiring against Jesus. Not loving and worshiping and commending Him to others. When it tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing Him, I think this sense of sight again plays on the idea of their understanding. That seems to be exactly what Jesus will go on to point to. Do you not understand that the Christ must have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And he expounded for them all the scriptures beginning with the early books of the Old Testament. So here their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And this non-recognition is making also a spiritual point. It was not unusual to travel together in the ancient world on a road. That's just seven miles from Jerusalem. And you might think, well, I can make a seven-mile trip by myself. But in the ancient world, walking on a road by yourself could be quite risky. It was common to be together. And if there was an individual traveler who might join up with some group or caravan, it was safer to do so. Here is this guy coming up to these couple people. And he starts walking with them. He starts to go their direction. He starts to match their pace. And now the two have become three. But they do not see what they will soon see. We're told in verses 17 through 27 that there's a conversation that unfolds. I find Jesus' question to them, it makes me smile in verse 17. He doesn't say, what are you talking about? He says, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? You should try that on someone this week. You know, you come up a couple people who are just sitting at the table and you should say, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? 
And Jesus asked them this in order to draw out from them the very things they're going to say. He can tell what Luke tells us as well. They stood still looking sad. These are not two happy people on a road. And Jesus is saying, all right, what's the joke of the day? What are we smiling about, y'all? No, there's no smiles on these faces. They look sad. And maybe you've come across a situation where if you have crossed paths with someone who, uh, who looks sad and they don't seem like they want to talk to you. And, and maybe you make a suggestion or ask a question and you think, OK, you know, they, th- this is not the time. OK, this is not the right timing. Jesus is asking them about the nature of their conversation and their whole demeanor is forlorn and downcast. Why are they sad? These disciples, like the eleven and like all the others, they've been counting on Jesus for everything. They banked it all in Him. They have followed Him for years. They've believed His words. They've commended Him to others. They've witnessed the miracles. They have seen and they have heard and they have followed. And now He's gone. They're sad because when Jesus died, their hope died with Him. So they think. The answer sounds dismissive. Okay, verse 18, one of them named Cleopas. Here's what he says to Jesus. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? I don't, I don't imagine this was a very patient response from Cleopas. It's almost, uh, it's almost a sense of he's frustrated at the idea that someone could ask a question without having any direction to aim it. Are you, have you, has your head been in the sand? Are you one of these who somehow doesn't know what's been happening? Are you the only visitor? This is to say Jesus' condemnation by the Romans, his crucifixion by the soldiers, his death on the cross were of such a public scene. It is unthinkable that anybody associated with Jerusalem wouldn't know. You must be the only guy, Cleopas says. The only visitor who doesn't know the big deal around here. Don't you know what's on the front page of every paper? Don't you know what's in the conversation in the air in every coffee shop? The only thing anybody's talking about and you're saying, what's going on? What are you talking about on the road as you walk? One writer puts it this way. It's a testimony to Jesus' own self-control that he doesn't burst out laughing at this point. Because are you the only visitor who doesn't know? Oh, not only does he know, Jesus knows better than anyone else in Jerusalem or any visitor to the city. Of anyone who could give you crystal clarity about everything that has happened, he's the guy. Are you the only visitor who doesn't know? He's the only one who completely knows. Now Jesus continues to play along with them. And he draws out from them a longer answer with his question in verse 19. What things? What things? Just to continue pulling from them. I love this story. Jesus is not being cruel to them. Oh, he's going to help them. He's doing what he's doing with patience and love, and also to reveal what they don't yet understand that they should understand. Don't you, are you the only visitor who doesn't know these things? Verse 19, he says, what things? 
Well, here Cleopas, he's just going to lay it out, okay? If you're the only visitor who doesn't know, I'm just going to break it down for you, sir. And I'm going to, I want to give you seven statements or what we might say summaries that are found in the answer of Cleopas here about this one Jesus. Seven statements that summarize Cleopas' answer. The number one, Jesus was a mighty prophet. This is the first thing Cleopas wants this stranger who's approached and drawn near to them on the road, wants him to know. Verse 19 continues this way. They said to him, things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet, in deed and word before God and all the people. Jesus is called a prophet. Now in the Old Testament, there was a mighty prophet foretold in the books of Moses. In Deuteronomy, in chapter 18, and in verse 15, Moses was learning and the people of Israel would learn that one who would be greater than Moses would one day come from the people of Israel. The words of God would be upon his mouth and they should listen to him. And so they are saying that Jesus is a mighty prophet. No doubt, like that prophet prophesied from Moses' days, But also that language mighty in deed and word helps them to remember not only did he speak with words of God and authority. He performed mighty deeds that make you think of some Old Testament prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, there were prophets who performed signs and wonders from time to time. It wasn't like every time Moses got up in the morning or Elijah got up in the morning, there was just a whole host of more miracles to perform. There are signs and miracles connected to Old Testament prophets. But all of them combined fall terribly short of the scope and grandeur and transcendent quality of what Jesus did. Jesus was a prophet mightier than every other mighty prophet of the Old Testament. Jesus was a mighty prophet in deed and in word. We're reminded of Moses in this language. In Deuteronomy 34, the last, the closing words of Deuteronomy say that for all the mighty power and great deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So deeds were performed in front of others. Mighty, powerful. And Jesus is a greater Moses, that longed-for prophet who performed mighty deeds. By the authority of Jesus, demons were driven from their hosts. Blind people began to see. Deaf people heard for the first time. The mute began to speak words. The paralyzed regained the ability to walk. Lepers were cleansed and restored to their families and communities. Storms were stilled and waves lay down. Food was multiplied to feed the hungry by the thousands. Fevers were rebuked and overcome. Withered hands made well. Swelling limbs restored. Dead people brought to life. Oh, when when Cleopas says... What kind of things are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, a mighty prophet, in deed and in word. 
And we're also talking about number two here. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Not only was Jesus a mighty prophet, Cleopas says he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Verse 20 says how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up. Now, he doesn't mention the Romans. We will imply that in a moment because he is put to death. But this was propelled by the zealous conspiracy and urgency of Jewish leaders. When he says our chief priests and rulers, that's a way of trying to to capture and pull together the leaders of the nation, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these people on the Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin. They were against the anointed one and they drew the line in the sand and they came up against the mighty one of God and they delivered him up. So Cleopas says we're talking about that. We're talking about this Jesus. He was a mighty prophet. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Number three, he was crucified and killed. That was the result of him being delivered up. The Jewish leaders turned him over to the Romans with accusations that would lead to Pilate eventually succumbing to the mob-like crowd. Not because Pilate believed Jesus was guilty. Pilate didn't believe Jesus was guilty of those charges. He says, I'm ready to, I'll I'll flog the man if you want, but I'm going to release him. And the crowd was getting out of control. Pilate delivered him over to the Roman soldiers who condemned him to death and crucified him. So number three, Cleopas is talking about this Jesus who was a mighty prophet, who was rejected by Jewish leaders, and who was crucified and killed by the Romans. This is Peter's own interpretation in Acts. When you read the second work that Luke has contributed, not just the gospel, but the book of Acts, here's Peter's speech in Jerusalem in Acts 3. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. Peter says, to this we are witnesses. Peter is proclaiming exactly what Cleopas is recognizing. He had been delivered up, condemned and crucified. Number four, Cleopas wants the traveler who's drawn near to them to know that Jesus was the one they hoped would redeem them. We put our hope in him. That's what we're talking about as we're walking. We're talking about the things concerning Jesus. And what are the things these disciples have thought that he would be the one to redeem? That's what they had imagined. This helps to explain the degree of sadness they feel as they walk. Their hopes were just shattered like a hammer through a window. Into a million pieces, now on the cross, the one they had hoped would redeem. How are you going to redeem Israel when the enemies of God have killed him? So they're looking at the death of Jesus as a redeemer disqualified. A redeemer who is no redeemer at all. They hoped he would redeem them. The idea of redeeming someone is very, very Old Testament. And these disciples of Jesus would have been steeped in the Old Testament, especially the twelve. Their Jewish backgrounds in the Old Testament scriptures rooted them in the Old Testament book of Exodus, which calls God a redeemer. A redeemer is someone who acts on behalf of another through cost. Who redeems through purchase. 
There's something there that is desired. And through some sort of cost or transaction, what is over there is redeemed and acquired. They had hoped that Jesus would be the redeemer of the people. That he would win them. That he would set them apart for himself. This is the Old Testament hope. Just to illustrate where in the Old Testament this is found, Isaiah calls God in Isaiah 41.14, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 43 and 44, God is called your Redeemer. In the Psalms, in Psalm 25.22, the prayer is, Redeem Israel, O God. And in Psalm 130, verse 8, a hopeful, optimistic statement. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So Jesus was viewed by these disciples as the one they hoped would redeem them. Even John the Baptist's father spoke this way in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. You see, in the Old Testament, the Redeemer was longed for. And in the New Testament, the Gospels present Jesus in Luke 1.68 or in the prophetess Anna's language in Luke 2.38. She began to give thanks to God along with those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. No, these, these are people who are not ignorant of the Old Testament. They love the hope of the Redeemer to come. And they are looking to Jesus and they're banking all on Jesus. And then he's died and buried. And a stone sealed it. And now his body's gone missing. And some women claim to have a vision of angels. No one's seen him alive. So Cleopas here needs a living hope. You and I will not be sustained by a dead hope. That is not what we need. If we have our hope grounded in, oriented by, looking toward something that doesn't last. The temporal things of this world to define and enthrall our souls. We weren't made for those things. Your soul was made for a living hope and the living hope is the living Jesus. He is a living hope. The tomb is empty because hope rises from the dead. Cleopas needs to know this in a full-on way. And that realization is coming. But for now, he is despondent as well as the other disciple on the road too. Because for them, their hope was alive as long as Jesus was. And friend, your love and your hope can be sustained as long as the living Christ lives. And he has put on imperishable. The mortal has put on immortality and he has risen from the dead never to die again. We have a living hope and we're not crazy for it. Because Jesus lives. So Cleopas, he says in verse 22, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. What's he summarizing? Well, we read it last week, didn't we? At the beginning of Luke 24, he's talking about those women and they're named in verse 9 and verse 10. He's talking about those women from our company. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And in verse 23, when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that he had even they had even seen a vision of angels who said he, Jesus, was alive. That's exactly what Luke 24, 1-12 reported. Cleopas is just summarizing this for this stranger who wasn't among the eleven and wasn't among the all the rest. 
Verse 24 says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So summary statement number five that I think we can isolate from Cleopas' words, Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. Number five. He's no longer in that tomb where he had been laid. And the summary of the women, the witness of the women, their testimony is exactly what Cleopas is drawing upon. There's no report that Cleopas went to the tomb. He's just telling the stranger on the road what these other women had said. Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb where he had been laid. Number six. From Cleopas' words, Jesus had allegedly been raised from the dead. Now, why would we summarize Cleopas' words that way? Because he says in verse 23, they didn't find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But in verse 24, we didn't see him. The reason... The reason Cleopas and the other disciple are sad on the road to Emmaus is because they believe Jesus has allegedly been raised from the dead. If it was more than just allegedly, they would not be sad along the road. For them, they have a dead hope and not a living Savior. So Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb where He had been laid. And number six, He had allegedly been raised from the dead. Number seven, and lastly here, Summarizing Cleopas' words, Jesus had not been seen alive by them. He had not been seen alive by them. Later on in chapter 24, all of that will be different. But for now, as far as these disciples know, he's allegedly been raised, but with what confirmation? So these seven parts of his report, Jesus was a mighty prophet. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Jesus was crucified and killed. He was the one they hoped would redeem them. His body was no longer in the tomb. He had allegedly been raised. He had not been seen alive by them. I don't imagine Cleopas' words came out without some misty eyes, some struggle in his voice. These are not things Cleopas is indifferent to. He does not have a neutral position toward this news. It has broken them. They are so sad by it. And Jesus responds. They do not know this is Jesus. Their eyes are kept for now from recognizing Him. And He says in verses 25 through 27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And I want us to notice something here. Verses 25 and 26 do not yet lead to the opening of their understanding where they say, oh, this is Jesus with us. That is still later. Here is someone who seems a stranger to them. And this stranger begins to speak with language calling them foolish and slow of heart. It's like, I'm sorry, what is your first and last name? We don't even know each other. And this stranger has drawn up to them, labeling them foolish ones and slow of heart. That had to take them aback, wouldn't it, you? It's like, I'm sorry, I think we're going to go back on just the two of us from this point. Uh, if you're going to speak this way, you know, uh, you know if, uh, here we have a strong opening 
direct address. Oh, foolish ones. The reason they're called foolish ones seems to be connected to that next expression. They are slow of heart to believe. Their sadness and their reports about what's allegedly happened and what somebody has said, it has not come across as showing wisdom from them. But folly. A dim understanding and clarity about the things. They're talking with sadness when instead they should realize they're only slow of heart to believe what the Bible had prophesied. Slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Oh, that word all. It's doing a lot in that verse. Believe all that the prophets had spoken. Oh, it's said in the Old Testament that the Redeemer would come. Yes. And during the days of the Roman Empire, God would raise up the son of David. Yes. And that he would vanquish his enemies. He would vindicate his people. Yes. But that's only what some of the prophets said. All the prophets, the whole of the prophets teaches, as Jesus will later unpack for them, that the Redeemer would come and vanquish the enemies of God and install the everlasting throne through being rejected, suffering and death and rising from the dead. Oh, Jesus says, you haven't yet believed all the prophets, have you? You're holding on to some of those things that according to you, the cross falsifies. No, Jesus is saying. All the prophets have spoken. When you listen to what they all say, when you put them all on the table and listen to all their voices in harmony, they say something altogether more grand and holistic and epic. In fact, he says in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I love the language necessary there. Wasn't it necessary? Now he's asking them to this, but he doesn't wait for an answer as far as we're given in Luke 24. He will immediately begin to teach them in verse 27. This question, friends, I would submit to you, this is the key question in the whole story this morning. This is it. This is the key verse. Wasn't it necessary? Because these people are walking along sad about the death of Jesus. As if it wasn't necessary. As if it wasn't supposed to happen. Jesus is using this language because this is language of divine plan. It's the language like must is used earlier in his teachings. The Son of Man must be rejected and suffer. Must, supposed to, necessary, necessary and must according to whom? The divine plan from the foundation of the world. That's what's being outworked here. And in verse 26, when he asked them this question, he's revealing that though they have been kept from recognizing them, they don't fully see all the prophets have spoken either. They have more growing to do, more understanding to acquire, more clarity to receive, and he will give it to them. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory. And Jesus believes that in verse 25 and 26. If you believe all the prophets have spoken. You will see why his suffering is necessary. Verse 25 and 26 go together. They don't see how necessary the cross was. Because not all the words of the prophets were clear to them. They did not fully believe them. 
If you read in the Psalms and if you read in the prophets, the suffering king in the language of a suffering servant and the substitute of one for another, including all the offerings of Israel offered unto death for an aroma pleasing to God at tabernacle and temple worship. All of this was preparing for the one who would come to lay down his life and rise, all a pleasing aroma to God. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Entering into his glory is something Jesus was doing even then. He had been raised from the dead. Weeks later, he would ascend to the Father. He would be reigning over all his enemies. And the last enemy to put to death would be death at his return. So yes, if you read the Old Testament, Jesus says, here's what you're going to see is necessary. You're going to see that God has promised a Redeemer. You are right to hope in him. And you will see that this Redeemer was to come in the fullness of time as God appointed. But he wasn't to come and acquire the kingdom apart from death, but through suffering and death and resurrection and defeat of death, suffering glory. The Old Testament teaches both. The Old Testament is filled with these shadows. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. In the scriptures, they would have found types and figures and plain words. In which the death and rising again and the shame and the glory of Christ are linked together. Spurgeon says his cross is the road to his throne. The cross is the road to his throne. Spurgeon says had they compared the testimony of the holy women with the prophecies of the Old Testament. They would have obtained a ground of hope. In other words if the women say not only has he died as we went to the tomb to expect. The tomb is empty. The angels say he's been risen from the dead. The right response from the disciples would be well of course it was necessary that it happened this way. Suffering and glory. So these foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, they in verses 25 and 26 hear Jesus. And then Luke stops telling us and just summarizing us in verse 27. Now, I don't want to be mad at Luke, but let me just tell you, I would like to know a little more about what Jesus said in verse 27. (laughs) Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures The things concerning himself. Oh, what a conversation to keep going. Walking on the road. And Jesus starts talking about the Old Testament. This is Jesus talking about the Old Testament with people who do not yet see. It is Jesus. Their eyes have been kept from recognizing him. But here's this stranger. This stranger has drawn near to them and starts talking about the Old Testament. Helping them to see. Beginning with Moses. Well, how far back is that? Well, the the Old Testament links the authorship of Moses to the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So when it tells us beginning with the books of Moses, I think we could say beginning with Genesis 1. So starting at the beginning. And then all the prophets, I think that's a way of saying, you know, everybody that wrote after Moses, all the the prophetic uh, people in addition to Moses, whom the Lord used to speak His holy word and write and preserve it. Moses and all the prophets... That's, that's a, a multi-phrased way of saying the Old Testament. Jesus interprets for them in verse 27 in all the scriptures. So I think that phrase confirms we're understanding Moses and all the prophets correctly. In all the scriptures. 
What's Jesus talking about? The things concerning himself. Jesus would have us understand that if you read the Old Testament, it is a story preparing for him. At the beginning, it's preparing for him. Not like somewhere later on in the Old Testament, something significant. Go to the beginning of Genesis. There's a fall. There are sinners now in a fallen and corrupt world in need of salvation and forgiveness and life. And in Genesis 3.15, a promise is made of a one who would come to defeat the serpent. And the defeat of the serpent would mean that victor would be struck on his heel. And in the ancient world, when a poisonous viper or some kind of serpent would strike the heel, which is, you know, it's relative to the ground. The snake isn't biting him on the earlobe. You know, it's a, a serpent on the ground. So it's a picture of a struck heel where a serpent would get you as you're walking. This is suffering and death. This is a wound, a wound unto death. So the promise The first messianic promise is victory through suffering. Now in my ESV translation, Genesis 3.15 is on page 4 of my Bible. And it's as if he's trying to help these readers see. Don't you realize at the beginning, let's say page 4, that the victory of the coming deliverer was through suffering? Don't you see that it is necessary? And he expounds for them from Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures, the things concerning themselves. The Bible is a Jesus book. The Old Testament is Jesus prophesied and the New Testament is Jesus fulfilled and proclaimed. Friend, you should follow this Jesus. We have a kind of clarity that those on the Emmaus Road at that moment didn't quite hear, didn't quite understand. But in a way, think of all of us on the Emmaus Road needing greater understanding about Jesus and the Scripture. We're all there. We're all walking these miles. We're all trying to understand the things that have happened. We simply have more to access and see than even they did at the time. In the preaching hour of the church of Jesus gathered, he draws near to us to help us see. When we open his word, when we seek to understand these things and see fully and holistically what all the Bible is trying to present, when we see it, it's because Jesus has come alongside to help us. Because none of us are clever enough, smart enough, savvy enough to just sort of open things and connect all the dots. Oh, we need the help of the good shepherd himself who feeds his people. And they don't understand what's happening on the road to Emmaus. But the good shepherd's drawn near to them to feed them. And he's feeding them from the scriptures and he's helping them to see. Oh, friend, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Him. There's no Redeemer but Him. There's no living hope but Him. You should follow Him. You should bank all for Him. You should trust in Him and know that your hope will never be in vain. For He lives. He lives. It wasn't just the report of the women. It was that and more. He began to encounter people. And He began to teach them. And their eyes began to see from the scriptures that these things were necessary. It was the plan of God from the beginning. J.C. Ryle in his words about Luke 24 here are absolutely right on. He says, Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice. Christ 
was the true deliverer and king of whom all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history were types. He says Christ was the coming prophet greater than Moses, whose glorious coming filled the pages of prophets. Christ was the true seed of the woman to bruise the serpent's head. Christ was the true scapegoat and the true bronze serpent and the true lamb. The true lamb to which every daily offering pointed. He was the true high priest. The true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure. Ryle says these things, these things or something like them. We need not doubt these were some of the things Jesus expounded on the road to Emmaus. Let Ryle's conviction be ours. Let it be a settled principle in our minds, he says. The key to understanding the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is the sum of its books. He is the one to whom they point. For Him and through Him are all things and all prophets. Let's stand together as we pray.